Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Sam Jay. Sam has been a writer at Saturday Night Live since 2017, where she's written Them Trumps, the most recent Black Jeopardies, and released early from the at-home editions. Sam is also just one of the best stand-ups period. Comedians have known this for a while now, and soon to join them is the rest of the country, with Sam releasing her first hour special, 3 in the Morning, on Netflix last week. What makes Sam so good is on full display in the joke you're about to hear from the special. She does what the greats can, which is just pack so, so, so much into one joke. A simple premise of being afraid to fly goes in so many directions while also displaying different paces and joke types. And it's worth noting that the joke we're going to play is actually part of a larger story of going to London with her girlfriend that runs through the entire special. It is one of the most exciting stand-up debuts in recent memory. One note, there were some issues with Sam's audio. We did our best. Thank you to my producers. So, here is Sam J. I'm a very nerve-wracked flyer. I hate fucking flying. I'm thinking about dying the whole time. The entire trip, I'm just like, I'm fucking dead up here, you know? I think if you're not thinking about dying, you're a psychopath. I don't know anyone who's just up there like, this is how God intended it. You know, what the fuck? It's like, clearly we have no business up there. We're watching ESPN, we're drinking. Who the fuck do we think we are? So ballsy, chill out, you know? This is delicate. Then we like to give the illusion of safety in case of an emergency. Bitch, we're dead if there's an emergency. This motherfucker's in the exit row with his shoes off drunk. He's saving all of us. He's the guy. He's the point man. Fuck you. Fuck you. You don't give a shit about us. I watched you give this man drinks. Maybe don't serve drinks to the exit row niggas. All the niggas. Maybe they have to be sober. You want me to feel safe in the skies. Kiss my ass. And I think about death in a weird... Like, I don't think like how most... I think most people think some regular ass shit, right? They think like, I don't know. What if the pilot takes us into a mountain today? Because he hates his fucking life. 
Or what if the engine fails? That's normal thoughts. I think crazy, crazy shit. I think like, what if the company that makes the chemical, that makes the doodle block? Okay, so when you're on a plane and you shit or you piss, it don't just go to the birds, baby. Right? You don't just flush it, it's in the sky. No, it stays on the fucking plane. Like a camper, and there's a chemical in there, and it makes a gelatinous mess, and when you land, they suck that shit out, they put a new chemical in for your next flight. I'd be thinking, what if the doodle block company, right, the chemical company, what if they skimp on a chemical? Just on some American greed shit. American companies are trash, they're always doing this type of fuck shit, cutting corners. We know this, cutting corners, doing funny shit. What if one of these fucking companies like, hey, you know what? We're not buying boric acid this month. We don't fucking need boric acid. It's $30,000 a unit, and it really doesn't do anything. Then I'm in the sky. I take a shit. The plane's half a pound heavier. Boom, into a mountain. <laughs> fucking dead. That's what the hell goes on in my brain. Shit that can't be cured with no safety video, you know? <laughs> Fuck are you. So I'm nervous. I'm on edge. As soon as I get on the plane, I'm on edge. I'm on it. I'm making sure everyone's phone's in airplane mode because that's everybody's job. I'm just like, look at him. Why this nigga on Candy Crush like that? Who's going to do something about that? That's weird. I don't like any of this. <laughs> then I sit down and I notice my girl's still fucking around on her phone. She ain't fucking changed her shit yet. She's playing games and shit. So I'm like, hey, baby, when you going to do it? The guy said, do it. I think you should go ahead and do it. And she snaps at me because she's still mad over the bag shit. So she's like, you don't got to do it till the plane takes off. And it's like, bitch, you don't build planes. You don't. You're not a plane scientist or no shit like that. You do it when the nigga driving the plane says it's time to do it. That's opportune time. And that caused a whole nother fight because I hit the button on that bitch. I was like, bing, get her the fuck out of here. Mm -mm -mm -mm. I'm not going to the sky with this bitch. She acting up on the ground. How the fuck we gonna go on the sky? You not following the ground rules, baby girl. That don't add up. <laughs> so then I'm in my seat and shit. Right? And now we fight and we trying to whisper fight like white people. You know, trying to get a good whisper fight in. <laughs> we, you know, that goofy, goofy stuff. And her main thing is like, she likes to fuck with me. Like, she likes to like say shit to me. Like, she's reminding me I'm a woman. Like, I don't, I fucking know that, you know? But she likes to, because uh, of my outfits and shit, you know what I mean? Because of how I dress, she's like, you, you know. I'm going to break you down, remind you, you a whole bitch. It's like, bitch, I got a pad in these boxer briefs. I know what's happening. I don't need this energy from you. Goofy ass. So we're sitting in the seat and we're arguing. And then she's like, well, what the fuck are you so afraid of, you scary bitch? Are you on your period? And I was like, what? I got so fucking mad. Balled up my first real tight, like I was about to punch the seat in front of me or something. Like I was just gonna act, you know? But I remember the last time I did that, we were at the house. I balled my fist up and I punched the wall, and then I just hurt my hand real bad. <laughs> Nothing happened, so I was like, let me chill. So I was just like, ah, what to do? Ah. And then I just told the truth. I was like, I'm afraid to die. 
I yelled that on a plane. <laughs> Just put it out there, you know? Just fucking be honest. But as soon as I said it, I realized it's not true. I think I needed to hear it out loud. I was like, that's not it. I'm not afraid to die, actually. Death is inevitable. I know it's going to happen. I'm not afraid to die. I realized in that moment, what I'm afraid of is surviving. I don't want to survive a plane crash. I think about being that one asshole floating on a piece of wing (laughs) in the middle of the ocean. (laughs) Way more than I think about death. (laughs) Just... On some life of pie shit, just live, nigga. No, that's trash. No, I don't want to survive shit. So I'm here with Sam J, the woman behind the joke you just heard. Thank you so much for being here. What's up? So before we get into the joke, I just wanted to provide a little context uh, of your journey for the listener. Um, you know, as you've told it after growing up loving comedy, the first time you tried stand up was around 21, but you stopped because it didn't feel right. It wasn't until 29 that you tried again and, and have been going for like nine years or so since. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about sort of that eight year period and deciding to do comedy again? And also, what by 29 did you realize were the types of jokes that felt right? Mm. Well, in that eight year span in between, right, when I first started and when I when I picked up the mic again, I was just like just kinda in the world fucking up mm-hmm. and, and running around. You know what I mean? I didn't I didn't really have any direction. I had no idea really what I wanted to do and I was just doing a lot of like menial bullshit jobs and you know, just feeling really like I'm just passing through but I'm not mm-hmm. existing. You know, I'm not I'm not present and I'm not like contributing. I don't even I don't know how good a word for it, you know? Yeah. And I just felt like the path that my life was going in, that I was selling myself short, to be mm-hmm. honest, and that I was settling. And it was like, you know, there's something bigger for you than this. Like, you feel it every day when you walk into this mailroom in this basement, you know? So that started to be like, uh, like way on me. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I still didn't know, like, what to do. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. But... I was always like into comedy, you know, hence why I tried it in the first place and always watched it, always knew who the new comics were, like just was always on top of that kind of stuff because I was just really into it. And I loved making people laugh in my way, you know, which was I'm not a roaster, you know what I mean? And I have a lot of funny friends, but they like they like to roast and shit like that. I'm way more observational and like Mm. witty and it, it, it takes me a while to like build a joke, you know? To really get something to where I'm like, yeah, this is confidently funny to me. But I do enjoy making people laugh, you know, and and pushing buttons a little bit. I have fun doing both of those things. And I used to see a lot of shit and just be like, I want to make a difference. But like, how do I make that difference as me, I guess, mm-hmm. is without the best way I could explain it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just always felt like when I was being funny, but also like you know, talking about something that might be more heavy, I like people listened, you know what I mean? It was just like, oh, this is a space where I'm able to command attention for for lack of a better word. And it seemed a space where I could be effective. Yeah. And uh, that's all I ever really wanted to feel was just like, I'm here 
and I'm not just passing through. Like I'm affecting this experience in some way and being a part of this experience for real. And it just, everything was pushing me towards comedy. Hmm. You know, comedians like to say, oh, it, it takes 10 years. It takes 10 years before you, you're really good, whatever that means. But you know, you've pushed back on that idea, at, you know, as partly as a lot of that 10 years is because people are starting so young that like, you just have mm-hmm. to not be an immature idiot for part of those times. And you started at, at 29. And there's, I imagine some advantages of sort of starting m- more mature, but sort of looking back at it now, how do you think you benefited from that arc to sort of start at 29 where you sort of had this life, maybe you've avoided bad habits young comedians would have had, bad tendencies? I mean, I think it was just an overall, starting at 29 gave me an overall ability to commit to something yeah. and to like work at it. And like, I had a vision for it because I wasn't, I wasn't a kid. So I wasn't like doing comedy to fit in. I wasn't doing comedy to make friends. I wasn't doing comedy to like, I was just like, all right, I think that I can be effective this mm. way. And so I, I feel like I was a lot more focused in that way. I say what, what I was trying to accomplish. I was clear on what I wanted to do. And, and I think that helped me move through it, you know? Yeah. And as far as on stage, the confidence of age was just like, I'm not talking and I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so before we get into the sort of specific joke, let's sort of just sort of talk about your, your general process. What does sort of writing a joke mean for you? Uh, I mean, I feel like I, I, I'm just always you know, picking up things from, you know, the day, you know, like, like as life happens, I'm noticing the funny things or the things that I find funny or weird or awkward or, you know, just interesting, like entry points into conversations, you know, mm-hmm. and dialogues that I, that I'm interested in having on stage. And, and, and then from there, I'll just like jot little ideas down about it, things that are sticking out in my head about it. And then most of the work, for me happens on stage. Then I just start bringing it on stage and, t- and like kind of talking through it until I find it. Mm-hmm. And, and are you tape recording sets and are you using that? Is that how you sort of build from there? I used to do it mad heavy, especially when I first started, I used to do it heavy and listen all the time. And like, I don't do it as much as I used to. I, I feel like I learned the mechanisms for my, my brain now. Like it's like the routine of it has now become a part of just my thinking process. Oh, and yeah, so yeah. I, I don't need to do that recording stuff as much because I, I remember a lot of like, you want to change that. You need to do that. Mm. But there's definitely some sense during the, the process of the special because it was such a, a, a big deal to me. And it was my first hour and I didn't want to like miss anything that there was definitely some sets that I did like record and listen to. Or if I said something very specific that night that I was like, yo, that was interesting. I like listen back to that part, but I don't, I can't really sit and just like listen to myself anymore. It's it's, like cringy to me. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So it's like, I got to pick and choose the battle on that one. Yeah. So, so this joke uh, about sort of broadly, it's about being afraid to fly. It's made up. I would say sort of in like five sections, there's the idea that you should be afraid to fly. Then there's sort of thinking about dying in a weird way section. Then there's sort of putting your phones in airplane mode section. Then there's the whispered fight. And then there's sort of actually you're afraid to survive, not afraid to die. But what was sort of the initial spark for this? Where did it start? If you really want to get into it, there's an iteration of that joke 
in the bit that I do about white men and flying. Mm. And like who had to, who only white guys would look in the sky, see a bird and be like, yeah, I should be able to do that. And just like the, the gall of it all, you know? Mm. So a part of that lives in that joke of just the audacity of humans to even be up here, you know? So if I had to look at like where, where it first started, my brain started thinking in that direction, it was ra- around that joke, which I, I probably told like three years before that, four years before mm. my special, you know? So, and, but then it was like, I was doing so much fucking flying i think that's why a lot of times you hear some type of airplane joke and every exactly yeah comics like every first timer special <laughs> yeah i feel like there's some type of something about the fucking plane you know what i mean and i didn't even mean for that to happen and and now that it's in there i'm, I'm a little bit of me wishes it wasn't because <laughs> i'm like hey everybody does that but it was it was so honest and it truly just was what was going on with me because i was doing so much flying to go to do all these shows to get ready to take this hour and i was always with my girl like we did the whole european uh tour together like she went with me the whole way so you know we were we were having all those type of conversations you know mm-hmm. and arguments so like the button and the sleep airplane mode that's like a real it was like a fight it was a genuine whole fight because yeah. I am super scary and she doesn't care. She does not care about flying. She could care the fuck less. But my girl is also very much one of those people who's like, God got me, you know, and she'll just move. And I'm just, I'm just not like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I feel like that was where the first part of it came from was that whole starting to just think about the audacity of flight, you know? And then the middle was just a really a culmination of what was going on in our relationship. And the last part really about like death and kind of like the weird ways to die was really just me being on a plane and just constantly being in the air and thinking about like, what are you actually afraid of? Yeah, You know what I mean? Like you're clearly petrified. What is, are you afraid of crashing? It's like, yeah, but am I? And then I was like, it's like, I do think the craziest shit. Like I really was thinking that on a plane. Mm-hmm. I really was sitting on a plane and someone went to shit and I was starting to think about like, what if the chemicals is wrong and what if... <laughs> This and that. And I'm like, that's the problem is my brain just like, it goes nutty. It doesn't even just live in like, we could crash. It goes like (laughs) insane. But I also thought it was funny as fuck that I was thinking like that. I was like, this is such a wild way to process this all. It's interesting. You're able to both experience the sort of anxiety of it and know it's funny, but it doesn't make it so you're not still anxious about it. So it still is real, but you're able to sort of be (laughs) both yourself and the you later who's going to be able to talk about it yeah because it, it's like it, for sure i was petrified but it was also like well if this plane lands this would be a fun thing to discuss exactly <laughs> if we do make it this would be an interesting thing to talk about you know and i i guess i just try to think about things that are like I, I try to hit the real core of shit i feel like you could always like just hit this surface of like oh i'm scared to die or, oh but it's like not nah, like what is your brain really doing that's always kind of been interesting to me yeah. So you, you've talked about how when you develop material, you like to sort of go in different directions and see how the audience responds. Maybe you'll try something gets a little bit more harsh or maybe offensive or, you know, just like really try to push it to see where the boundaries of this joke are, where the audience is at. Can you talk about what that's like in practice? Were there directions this joke ultimately didn't stay in that were like maybe too much for an audience? I think that like in that particular process of that joke, it was just like kind of more so filtering out like what are the uh, 
like the hits because <laughs> it was like a long story you know what i mean and i was like all of this isn't funny you know some of it is just what happened or maybe some of it's just shit i think is funny but like it's really not like translating i don't really have a specific that jumps out to me i just know sure. that as i was like doing the joke it was a constant editing process and then there were some things that got injected you know I, at first i feel like all i had was just like the top of it of like the ballsiness of being in the sky and then i had the like castaway part of it i didn't have yeah. any of that stuff with like the plane and my girl and the, but that all came from that actually happening once we went to europe so like that piece came kind of later mm. and kind of created the kind of bridge in the middle of all of that shit for me and that's kind of how i do jokes i just always like i just like keep fucking with them yeah that's interesting that you had the sort of like initial thing that you found absurd that sort of launches you into it and then you sort of had i guess the realization and then you're like how can I get to this realization in a way that sort of feels organic without me just yeah. Sort of saying it? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly, exactly. How can I like build it in the bit, like in the set where it feels like organic? Exactly. Where, because I want people to be able to like take a journey with me, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't want, I want it to feel like, okay, we're just like walking through this person's mind. And like, I want them to be able to see the steps, you know? Like, this is how you leap from here. Because I take wild leaps, right? Yeah. But I mentally, I'm, I do that. So for me, like the, the trickery was like, how do I take them through the leaps? Like, mm. how, do, how do I show them how my brain can go from this to the toilet chemical being wrong to castaway? Which is yeah. exactly what my brain does. You know what I'm saying? But like, yeah, yeah. how do I map that? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because it... At first, this joke is a very internal story. It's like a lot of thoughts you had. And that is, it's, you know, it's like, a, it's, which is good, but there's a bit of like a show don't tell where you like want to show, oh, I'm like, this is a thing that I think, and this is how it interacts with the world thinking this way. Like, instead of like, I'm not just telling you like, this has real consequences. I'm getting into these fights for no reason. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to, because I know so, there's so much to this joke. I want to sort of dive deeper into each section um, and just sort of talk more about your thought process. So the first section, which is, you know, talking about the sort of the gall of being confident that you should fly. And you, you talked about how that evolved. What is really interesting is, you know, you've, you've talked about being vulnerable and your standup's important. And if something scares you, that that means it's something you should be talking about. And as we said, this is like the idea that flying is like an obvious territory for a lot of comedians, but even saying like, oh, I'm afraid to fly is a thing people say. But what you do is you sort of straight out in third sentence, like, I'm thinking about dying this whole time. Like you're telling the audience really early into this joke, really early into special, like death is in this joke. Is that scary for you to talk about? You know, in, in general, why is it important for you to sort of talk about that sort of darker parts of you? Because it's what I really feel. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's, to me, that's that's the joke. To me, it's just like, I'm really up here just the whole flight. Just like, and like, my girl could be a testament to it. Like, I'm always like, looking out the window, any one little bump. I'm listening to the engine. I'm like, this engine don't sound like the engine on the mm. last plane. I, I feel like this engine sounds different. <laughs> so, like, it's really what's happening in my head. You know what I mean? And so, like. I, I don't know. I just get on stage and, and try to tell the truth and be funny at the same time, of course. But a lot of it is just me like being like, I know I'm not the only motherfucker thinking this yeah. shit. 
was the exit row drunk stuff based on a specific experience? Yeah, we was on a plane. I can't remember where we would go. We were going to London or Australia, and this this uh, African guy got me. Took his shoes off, and mm-hmm. then he like there was like a little hump on the door, like the exit door, like the emergency door. Yeah, and he just sat on it, <laughs> and I was like, "That's fucking what? Like, why? Why are they letting this happen?" And the students just kept walking by, so I was on high alert because of that dude. Mm-hmm. And then I looked, and the other dude, he was in the exit row with his feet stretched with two drinks. Mm. And I was just like, this is fucking crazy. Like, <laughs> why are they letting the important people behave this way? <laughs> like, I just, it was blowing me because I was so scared up there. And I was like, this is not, this ain't safe. Yeah. A lot of it's in the inflection where you go, I watched you give this man drinks. Like you sort of, are you deliberate about phrasing in that way? Are you like, how do I sort of, are you playing with like, how do I, how can I say the sentence in a way? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think at first I was just like, they're giving them drinks. You know yeah. what I mean? And that feels different than yeah. I watch it. I mean, words are important. You know what I mean? Especially for a stand-up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like, for sure, I, I I said it one way, but I don't, I don't necessarily like remember. I don't go, oh, you said it like this, try it like this. It just mm. eventually will start coming out different ways when I yeah. keep telling the story. And then the way that like bangs and I like, that's the way I keep. Yeah. In, in the section, you say, you know, a few times. It, I'm not sure exactly how intentional it is, but it, it's a thing. Completely unintentional. Yeah, unintentional and that's... I saw it and it drove me fucking crazy. But I will say, <laughs> I, I will say I have brought this up to comedians before because there are a few comedians that do it. And they also say it's unintentional and it's a tick and they don't like it. But it is specifically a thing comedians do who are more conversational it is a conversational comedians thing to do which is like checking in constantly trying to like like as if you're talking like you know is a thing you'd say to a person in a conversation yeah. you're like yeah you're with me you know why is it important that your material regardless of your desire not to have those you know why is it important that your, your material is conversational because uh... <laughs> This is the thing. It's such a weird thing because it was a decision that I made when I early. So I, if you said I could be a nerd, so I'll be a nerd. Yeah, go for I it. used to before I even really started getting on stage, I would go to bars and like basically I was like workshopping shit before I was ready to like get up with the shit. I would go to bars by myself and just like sit with people and spark conversations and mm-hmm. talk about shit that I, I would force the conversation in the direction I wanted it to sure, go yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to basically try jokes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> to be quite honest. And I would do this shit like as a practice and that helped me get the confidence to get up on stage. Yeah. So I was like kind of using that as a, like a playground practice ground type shit. So mm-hmm. I would do that stuff and then like eventually I built that up into some like you just need to go get on stage and stop being a pussy and like trying jokes out on unsuspecting people. And like I'm killing at bars, you know? They're like, yeah, that's all right. But I'm like, this is like the pussy ass way to go about this, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when I decided like I'm gonna do these mics and I'm getting on stage, I just told myself it it, it has to feel like that. Yeah. I have it has to feel how it felt in the bars. Yeah. And if it doesn't feel like that, then I'm doing something wrong because that's when I'm at my best. I was like, I was like, that's just when you in the zone. So tailor the experience on stage and just try to make it feel like that. Mm-hmm. And just get get as close to that as you can get. 
and you'll be doing something right. I mean, it's 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 really interesting because that is a realization that you, I hear comedians realize so much later in the process. Like I, I've known so many comedians where literally they get advice seven years in and they're like, you're really funny off stage. Why are you funnier off stage than you are on stage? Like, why are you not the guy you are in the green room? And that's like a light bulb. And you realize that before you started. Well, because I was like any other way, it ain't going to click. Yeah. It clicks this way. Because then once I'm feeling that confidence, then that's when my brain can run. Mm. But if I'm like being this like awkward version of myself, then I'm doing too much thinking and not enough doing. Yeah. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then we're going to get in trouble. But I think that came with age. Yeah. I had other experiences in my life where I, I was trying to be something and do. So also like comedy for me was also like a present to me. Mm. It was like, you're going to go try this thing for you. So this has nothing to do with nobody but you. You're doing this for you to see if you can do it. And can you do it the way you think you can? Mm. And so I wasn't willing to make a lot of concessions in that in that way. Yeah. So the joke moves and uh, you have the the weird ways in which you think about death section on the plane. Did you have other examples of that other than the, the doodoo block example? Nope. nope. Did you have the word doodoo block right away? Is that like... I don't know if I was always saying doodoo block. I don't know. I don't... I, I want to say very early on, I was like, it's the gelatinous mess and they suck it out. Mm. Yeah, I think I still say doodoo block. I think I still say doodoo block from the jump. You immediately know what you're talking about, even mm-hmm. though it's never words that I've seen put together. <laughs> but it makes sense. Like, yeah. you know. This part of the joke does something that I think you're really good at, which is sort of you start the joke and you think it's about one thing or it's about a, uh, a personal experience. And then it's sort of like, oh, now it's about corporate greed for a bit. Like it's about <laughs> a completely different thing. I mean, maybe it's just where your mind goes, but... You know, why is it important to sort of like make sure that stays in? Like, why do you want to be like, yeah, I'm telling a personal story and it's rude in me, but like also I want to like have commentary in it. I want to make sure I'm saying something. I, I just feel like this is how I think, you know what I'm saying? So like when I was telling that joke, it was just kind of like a natural progression. I didn't really even feel like I, like I need to make a statement on corporate greed. I was just like, we hear all these stories all the time about this, like, people just being trash. And I was on the plane, like, so who's to say someone's not being trash now? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, we yeah. know this type of behavior exists. And, like, we're always hearing these, like, oh, they sold faulty parts and they knew it. They, you know what I mean? So I was just kind of like, that's just where it went. And I watch a lot of American Greed and shit. So that just shit should be just in my head. Yeah. The, the other thing about this part is it sort of switches the pace up, you know, like, the earlier sections and even later sections are sort of more laughs per minute, but this one is sort of a long build to when you say like boom into the mountain. You know, one, what's the value to that? What do you like about not necessarily trying to like joke, 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 and also sort of how you're approaching it to make sure the audience is still with you on a sort of a longer part? Honestly, when I first started really like doing stand up very early on, I was kind of like, I had this goal of an hour in my head. Like I yeah. knew that's what I was building towards. You know what I'm saying? Because I was like, that's the thing, you know? That's what you're trying to get to. You want to be able to do an hour your way in front of your audience because that's when you'll know. And this wasn't necessarily like, I need an hour special. I just wanted to have an hour of material. Yeah, you know for what I'm touring saying? or for whatever. Yeah, and, and I was just like, that's how you're going to know when you if you're nice or not. Mm-hmm. When you're holding it down for like an hour and it's like, that's when you're really going to see your potential. 
You know what I mean? And what you really could do with this thing, how far can you take it? You know, you can't really tell your 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 level of sauce in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, especially when that shit gets old. It starts to get mm-hmm. old quick. Where you're like, damn, I need more time. I, I had more to say about that, you know? So the hour was like the goal. And in trying to like build an hour, I would watch other people's hours, you know? Chris Rock, Hannibal, Dave Chappelle, whoever, George Carlin, whoever. And one thing I, I started to notice was just like, people ain't laughing the whole time like that, bro. Yeah. Like even in a cat room shows, and not to say people don't laugh, but there's just times when people are listening because you're you're crafting something for them. And that's okay. And when I was, you know, younger in comedy, I was so uncomfortable in that space. And I just would be running to the laughs, you know? I would just be like, I, I didn't like any real space. So I would be rushing to punchlines and rushing to shit. And I and sometimes big pieces or good tags would get missed because I was just like, they ain't laughing, gotta get into the laughing. They ain't laughing, gotta get into the laughing, which I'm sure a, a lot of young comics do, you know? And then when I started doing um, Slades in Boston, which is the black room, and Jonathan Gates started telling me like, yo, you ready to headline, I'm gonna take you out. One of the things he always always tell me is like, slow down, slow down. Why are you rushing? Why are you rushing? And I was just like, I just don't, you know, I don't, he's like, yo, just slow down. Like they following you, they listening, that's okay. And coupled with watching people's hours, I just started training myself like, yo, you gotta get comfortable in that silence. And especially the type of comedy you like to do, it's going to get awkward up there. Yeah. And you just got to be cool with that and, and stop being so pressed and so thirsty, really, and chill the fuck out and trust your jokes. Be confident that you're going to bring them to the other side of this and they're yeah. going to be okay and they're going to get paid off. Mm. You're not going to leave them hanging. So just trust yourself, trust your jokes, and just get more comfortable up there because I feel like if I wanted to do a good hour, it was going to have to have some of that. Yeah. It's interesting because it's, it's as you're talking about the type of comedy you like to do, it's like if you give them payoff too quickly, then they will have not felt it. Like if you want them to feel tense, you need to let there be tension. We'll be right back with more Sam J. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. 
The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And we're back with Sam J. So then it goes into sort of the putting the phone away stuff. So you had, you know, there's both your girl not having her phone out and there's a guy playing Candy Crush. Is that actually like a sort of a amalgam of like a variety of different experiences? It's like two. Yeah, it's a few. It's it's different ones. It's like me and my girl definitely had to fight mm. about the, and I did hit the button and, and the lady did come. And my girl was very pissed. She called me a bitch ass nigga to be exact for most of the rest of the flight <laughs> because she was hot that I told on her. So that was one experience. And then I just always see people playing on their fucking phone still. And it drives me crazy. This part of the joke sort of has what I think is the climax, which is she says, you don't need to turn off your phone until the plane takes off. And you say, bitch, you don't build planes. Uh, do you remember writing that or just being like saying that? And you'd be like, that is it. That's yeah. the line. I remember saying it and being like, that's it. I remember like the experience happened. I was like, I'm going to tell the story that night. That's the great thing when like stand up is up and alive and running. It's like you can run right to the stage. Mm-hmm. And I'm like one of those people. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to get up and try that tonight while it's like in my brain. You know what I'm saying? So I remember doing it that night. And when I said, bitch, you don't build planes, people like didn't kill over, but they was laughing. And I was like, I love how that sounds. You know, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's like exactly how I was feeling. What's interesting in the in the film version of the special you do something which I, I don't know if I've ever seen, which is you cut to a different camera for each word. So it goes, bitch, cut to another camera. You cut to another camera. Don't cut, build, cut planes. How did y'all decide to do that? Man, that was just a big baby Ruder. <laughs> Ruder, who's the editor, he just did it that way. And I was yeah. like, that should look dope. <laughs> he was just saucing. I, I am so appreciative of the, the team, like Chris. And uh, Ruder, they were together all the time. And, you know, Chris was very adamant of, like, if I come, like, it's kind of like I got to come with Ruder. And and we really built a vision together as far as, like, the direction and and, and how that thing was going to look and feel. And I can't be proud of those guys and, like, just what happened. A thing like that underlines something I think that is specific to you, which is there's some comedians who are, like, really diligent about, like, maintaining artifice of their stand-up like the illusion that all of it's spontaneous and they're just like a guy talking and like they're telling a story they've been telling for 10 years but they talk about how it happened last week and even in the footage they try not to like bring attention to the fact that it's a film piece but i feel like you specifically don't have patience for that bullshit or whatever do you feel like that's (laughs) true do you feel like that gets in the way of the truth yeah and it's like these motherfuckers ain't dumb (laughs) yeah you ain't tricking nobody with yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like, and if if and if I was tricking somebody, if somebody was really like, oh, she really just thinks of all this today, and like, I wouldn't really want them as a fan. Yeah, I don't. I don't want that type of fan <laughs> to be quite honest. So it's just like I don't have any interest in that. 
In this section is one of my favorite lines in the joke, which is, how we're going to go up in the sky, you're not following the ground rules, baby girl, which is like a sneaky pun, um, because ground rules means two different things. Um, it's one of also the two places in this joke where you laugh at yourself. The others is during the whisper fight where you're imitating the whispering, and you call that goofy, goofy stuff. But, you know, this joke deals with heavy subjects, death, corporate greed. You know, why is it important to you to sort of maintain silly moments to sort of have these goofy parts? Bro, you know something really funny? When I thought about the special, I just wanted it to feel whole. Yeah. I just wanted it to have everything. Because I was like, I always felt like those were the best people to me. It had everything. And so there was a while when I was building it kind of early on, I thought it was too heavy handed. Yeah. I thought it was way too heavy handed. I was like, this shit is coming off preachy. And it ain't mm-hmm. coming off as funny. And like people are still laughing. But this shit felt preachy as fuck to me. And I, I, I completely just broke bold and I started doing real dumb jokes. I was doing jokes about iPhones. I was doing just jokes about doo-doo. Yeah. I had a joke about shitting in public. I was just like, I got to I gotta get goofy because this shit is just feeling too heavy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And what, what you see in the hour is just a balance of that. It was like I had to find, I had to find the, the silly footing like separate. And then loop it back into the thing because the shit was just coming off like overbearing for me personally. And I just wanted it to feel whole. I wanted the viewer to just get get every time, like on some boxing shit. I wanted them to get every combo. Like hmm. I could hit this way, I could go this way, I could go this way, like just on some wanting it to to be saucy. And also, I mean, in so much of your stand-up, you want to convey who you are. You are not constantly like preaching and like making grand statements. You have a silly life as well. Yeah, exactly. And I just wanted all of that to come across. Like, I just really didn't want it to come off as one of these, like, I'm going to tell everybody what it is, dumb, dumb motherfuckers. And I wanted it to just feel like a a, a trip through my personal thought process. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes it's goofy and sometimes it's critical. And sometimes I'm just an asshole. And like, that's like how usually whole people are made, you know? And like, that's just what it is. Um, And I just wanted you to feel that. How do you feel about laughing on stage, laughing at your own stuff? I don't care. If it's funny to me. All right. I don't know. Like, I, I just like, I don't, I hate all these rules. I really do. Yeah. I hate them. I don't believe in them. I believe it's like, it's like what works for you is what the fuck works. You know mm. what I'm saying? Now, if you up there and you planning laughs, then, yeah, that's mad fucking corny. Don't be up there planning. I'm a laugh right here. That's lame as fuck. But if it actually makes you laugh, then it's just another genuine moment. And that's it. Yeah. So the joke moves on to the whisper fight. There's a a moment where she says, are you on your period? Did you feel like, oh, by having that line here, I could be like subverting how this is used because it is being used between two women? Did you feel like it that way? Nah, she just really said that to me, bro. All right. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) She really asked me if I was on my period. I mean, we ask that of each other sometimes. We some ways be in, in a mood. Mm hmm. The other thing about this part of the joke, which is it happens throughout different times of your stand-up, which is you sort of contrast between sort of your masculine presentation and being a woman or, or being feminine, or even just sort of contrasting being hard and also sort of being soft in broad ways. It's not like a heavy-handed part of the special, but it sort of comes up in little moments. You know, what is sort of fundamentally funny about that contrast, that sort of conflict? I think it's just all kind of inherently funny because... 
I don't know because it is actually like my existence. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a hard question, but not. It's because it is like really who I am, and like you know, I I, I have two older brothers. They still protect me like a little sister. I didn't take the trash out. They're very like, this is my little sister. You know what I'm saying? And I have a lot of males in my family and I was the youngest. So, you know, my brother still calls me baby girl. And Mm -hmm. I still have that type of stuff in me where I'm like, no, I'm the baby. I'm cute. And like, that's just how I feel. And that's just an honest part of who I am as well as my masculine of center. So is an honest part of who I am. And those things just live in me. Mm-hmm. So then it, the fight builds too, and then you sort of yell, I'm afraid to die. And then you sort of realize that's not what it's about. Can you walk me through sort of the that development? And it because it feels like you were real. I mean, obviously, it's part of it. But you sort of, it's interesting to sort of start with a sort of fundamental premise, which is that you're afraid to die. And then at the end of it being like, actually, that is not it. Can you walk me through sort of developing that both sort of off stage and on stage? I think on stage, it was just a real, like, and and they live together, right? Because I used to just talk about how I was afraid to die on stage. Yeah. Right? And it, and before I had that piece of the joke, that was it. Just like, I'm afraid to die, and that's it. You know what I'm saying? And I started not being afraid to die and really thinking about it and being like, you not. Yeah. And so even that discovery kind of came on stage. It was just like, I got to be honest, because I, I feel something different than when I was started telling this joke. Like Mm -hmm. I've changed in reality and what I thought it was, it really isn't. And when I really sat and thought about it more, I was like, oh, you've always had this weird fear of being a survivor of something. And that's just true. Yeah. You know, um, you know, if you're comfortable, can you talk? I I guess I'm wondering just sort of how your sort of fear, the fear of death sort of materialized in your life, even before you're a comedian sort of, Mm -hmm. um, was it a sort of active, frequent thought? Like, were you kind of constantly having an in, in, intrusive thoughts? Do you, do you remember sort of how it started? I mean, my mom was ill. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I had a, I had a, I grew up with a sick parent, and my mom passed away when I was 16. So death was around me for sure, and I was aware of my mom's mortality by the time I was like 13. I was like yeah. very aware that I probably wasn't going to have a mother late in my life. And that I was probably going to lose my mother young. You know what I'm saying? And as that became more of a reality, you know, my mom had to keep it real and like talk to me. You know what I'm saying? About that possibility and what that meant for me. And like, how was I feeling knowing all this kind of shit was going on? So I think that was the start of that idea living in my head and haunting me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it also captures what this joke captures, which is partly be afraid of death, but also not feeling invincible like a lot of young people mm-hmm. do, right? There's the people who are like, I can fly, whatever. Like, I, it's possible, I guess I can die. Like, they're aware of it, but like, they don't feel it. Where it's for people that have lost parents uh, or someone early on, I think that's that's the thing that people don't get, which is sort of like the bliss that you have where you just sort of like go through life is not a thing that is so easy to understand. Yeah, and then I was like, my mom has lup- had lupus, and then I got diagnosed with lupus at 20, and I was like fucked up in the hospital for a while with the same kind. So then I'm thinking about my own mortality. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's just like, that's just kind of been hanging, and it's been years of a back and forth with it to come to like a pace, place of peace. Are, are you familiar with the, the term survivor's guilt? The, the idea yeah. that people... like. 
it's interesting because it's it's a term usually used for people who like survive plane crashes. But you know, at least in my experience, there's also sort of survivor's guilt of being a person who who stays alive if a person close to you mm-hmm. dies. Do you feel like that's in this joke as well? I I never thought about it, but maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you just tapped into some. It's it's a thing that I heard the joke and then. I'll say it's a realization. So I, I um I also lost uh, a parent early early on in my life, mm-hmm. and it's a thing that it's in this joke. I saw something similar, which is at first you just sort of you feel that like I'm afraid to die, but then you also have that thing of like, you know, you you're not necessarily how do you put it, but you do feel a pressure to being the person who's still around. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. That's kind of what I'm talking about. It's like. And that's what I'm like, maybe, because that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's just like, when you survive, now you're the survivor. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's like a whole nother thing. Like, it's just a whole nother bag of shit. And when I really think about it, I be thinking about that in every way. Like, whenever I thought about the plane crashing, honestly, I'm like, I really realized I never thought about like, oh, you're going to die and then what's going to happen when you're dead. I would just be like, what if you end up just by yourself in the ocean? That would be my thought. Yeah. Like, and then what you going to yeah. do? You know what I mean? Like, and that fucking sucks. Like, the idea of that is terrifying to me. Terrifying. I mean, in general, has your pursuit of comedy been directly tied to your relationship to dying in that way? Probably 100%. No one's ever asked, and I've never openly had to, like, admit it, because I don't really think about it. But I can easily say it's uh, probably 100% tied to my issues with mortality, life, and death. That I was kind of like, get off your ass. (laughs) <laughs> yeah because <laughs> you only got one of these you know what i'm saying i'm very much one of those people like you only live once you only have one chance at this shit it don't rewind and it don't come back so if you blow it if you don't try if you don't shoot like that shit's on you yeah the other thing that uh, i love about this joke which is you show yourself change which so many comedians don't do that they sort of like like to present the finished product they like to present like they know everything but it feels like throughout the special, it's really important for you to be like, you, it's okay to not know something. It's okay to um, be confused. Like, why is it important for you to sort of not be a black and white comedian? Like, to be a sort of like gray comedian of like, I'm figuring out this is a realization I'm making for you. Because I'm a gray person. Yeah. I live in the gray. Like, I'm very much, I've kind of always been that. You know, like, even when I was a kid, like, I remember... Being in school, I went to Catholic school and the priest came to talk to us and he told us all like, you know, priests could only be men. And I was like, well, why? And he was like, well, that's just what happened because God had, you know, 12 apostles and they were all men. And that's why priests can only be men. And I was like, well, what if someone gets a sex change? Mm. And, it, and now they're a man, could they be a priest? And then I got kicked out and my brain just always goes there. Yeah. Yeah. This section has a... the. There's not many act outs in this special, but there's a little one here Ooh. where you're. Do, what do you? How do you feel about act outs? You, you do a little thing. <laughs> yes, that's interesting. I'm, I'm, I like that you notice everything. That's just <laughs> <laughs> you notice it all. This that makes the conversation fun. Um, yeah. I I feel about act outs. How I feel about all of it, which is there are no rules, and if it feels right, do it. So yeah. I'm glad they're in there, and when I watch them, I'm like, oh, I feel like all of the act outs in there are like strong. And they're all genuine and they don't even feel like act outs. I hate to see act outs as like ways to take up joke space. 
Yeah. I hate that. That drives me insane. And I definitely never wanted to do that. And I also don't like to just see act outs for the sake of act outs. Like, I I don't believe in this comedy checklist of like, it has to have act outs, it has to have callbacks. Has to, I don't, I just, mm. I, I just don't work that way. Yeah. The the other thing is this, this part of the joke has a Life of Pi reference, which though spot on <laughs> feels like a very Sam J reference in that it's not current, but it's also not old. It's just sort of like, a reference that is sort of specific to you. There's a few in the special that are like that. How do you sort of approach when you like feel like a pop cultural reference makes sense? Well, what do you like about that reference? It's another way of putting it. It just fit. <laughs> it honestly just fit. Like when I was on stage talking about it, Life of Pi was like, that was another movie that I saw of that burnt into my head of this is trash. Like yeah. I didn't watch that movie like, whoa, I just was watching it like, what the fuck? That would be so awful. I would be begging for death. Like, this is terrible. And so when I was doing a joke, it just made sense to me. It just yeah. it just worked. You know what I mean? I might reference something. I used to have a joke about the AIDS quilt. If it makes sense to me, and I feel like it has relevancy in what I'm mm. saying, I, I think that's the only relevancy I need. Yeah. I don't you need, know, like, the cultural, like, it's relevant right now. It just has to have relevancy to what I'm talking about. You've talked a little bit about naming your special three in the morning as it sort of like captures the vibe and the sort of thoughts you have at three in the morning. How, how would you describe those thoughts and, and how does the joke fit into that vibe? Uh, it's honestly perfectly that vibe because I, I feel like it's just like these these giant like lucid leaps. <laughs> I'm just kind of like, and then what if this happens? And what if this happens? And then next thing you know, you know, the t- I was thinking about pizza and now, you know, I'm at like, oh, that's why slaves didn't fight back. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like how the leaps happen in my brain. So, and I feel like that's that's how it captures that. It just really yeah. is like if I'm up and I'm like smoking a joint and I'm just vibing on some music or or thinking like that's typically how the, the thoughts will roll. Almost the entire special follows one story kind of like you use the story of going to london with your girlfriend as like a, a thing that sort of moves forward but you're not only telling that story you're ultimately sort of like using it as jumping off points for other things like you're in london someone brings up trump and that sort of like goes you into trump how did you sort of land on that structure or even sort of having a structure like that at all man honestly i was just, i was trying to make it whole I wanted yeah. it to feel like a, a, a one journey because that's to me what makes a special feel special is some level of that symmetry, some level of that flow to it, that fluidity to it. That you know, I didn't want it to feel like sections of joke. Yeah, you know, like I say this joke, then I say this joke. I just felt like if I'm gonna call it a special, it's got to have some level of a through line, right? But I was also like, I want to talk about all this shit. That's really genuinely the shit I want to say right now. And then we went to Europe and I was coming back from Europe and I was still going on the road and I was just talking about the trip. And I started to just find all these things in a trip that I was like, oh, you could just use this to lead you to talking about kids. Cause I was already talking about kids, you know? Yeah. Oh, you could, that part with the Uber, you could slide the Trump thing right right in there. Oh, you could just and I really that's that's how it happened. Yeah. As I was just I was just kept looking for it because I, I felt it needed it. And but I also wanted it to organically show itself. I didn't want to force it and I just used the stage time as the time to find it. Like I really just grinded that bitch out on the stage a lot. Just was up there awkward, 
sometimes just talking about one thing for 35 minutes and pissing audiences off. You know what I mean? Like just yeah. really just took it to the mattress in that way and was just kind of like, we going to get it there. You know, you mentioned where, and even in interviews, you'll talk about that first special really is was important to you. Like in, in a way, years, for years, you've been talking about how you want your first special to to be something. Or you'll reference how Chris Rock's Bring the Pain was just sort of like this moment where he had this first special and he sort of introduced himself. What do you think it is about specifically first specials that have such potential in a way that maybe even like a, a later special might not? Because no one knows your voice yet. So it's like, it's exciting to meet you. Mm-hmm. They ain't met you before, you know? <laughs> Once they know your voice, they met you. So now they think they know what you think. Yeah. But when they first meet you, they're like, I don't know what the fuck this motherfucker's about to say. And that's exciting. Yeah. There's a... Um... And maybe not, but there's a, a bit on the special about, you know, Obama might have been the first black president, but Trump is the first N-word president. And that feels like, I don't know if intentionally or not, but it sort of feels in conversation with sort of the, the famous Chris Rock bit from Bring the Pain, the black people versus N-words mm-hmm. joke. You know, do you either, it either was an intentional or now thinking about it, do you feel like it feels like a contemporary extension of what you responded to so much about that original joke? Chris Rock is just someone who's influenced me. Mm-hmm. You know, even before I knew I wanted to be a stand-up, I, w- I would watch Chris Rock and just be like, he was one of the first stand-ups that I could identify like, oh, you could be black and do it that way. That's that's interesting. What what way? Because I feel like we weren't getting the the scope of our artists. So it was like, you either just had Def Jam shit or nothing. You know what I mean? And I wasn't like, I wasn't funny like that. You know what I mean? I'm way more just like, not. I'm just not funny in that style. I don't even know how to put it. But then when I saw Chris, it was like, oh, this is like hitting on all the notes that make sense to me. But it's still very black and very like in that space. Like it can live in the Def Jam space 100%. You know what I mean? And, And that was super interesting to me. And so, like, certain bits just stuck with me for my whole life. Like, niggas versus black people is probably my number one favorite bit in the fucking world for, for what it, it was so funny, but also just what it did. It just, it put a stamp <laughs> in culture immediately. Boom. Mm-hmm. Now things are different. You know what I mean? Now think different, which yeah. is what I love about stand up. And so, Probably just because I'm influenced in that way. Yeah, it, it probably is an extension of that in some way. So watching your special and sort of watching your comedy, the thing that it's sort of always that stuck out to me is that you're a, a realist. Does that make sense that you're like a staunch realist while there's like some comedians who are like try to talk about how the world should be or they talk about the ideals. I feel like your comedy comes from here how it is and we got to deal with it in a sort of realistic terms. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you? Do you know why is it important to you to be a, sort of a grounded in that way? And where do you think it comes from? I mean, I think it just comes from like, that's how I grew up. That's the type of parent I had, you know? That's how I was taught to deal with tragedy. That's how I was taught to deal with things. You know, my brother went to jail when I was young and it was like, this is some sad shit, but it doesn't get to determine your life. <laughs> it just mm-hmm. is. And like, we got to move forward. And I and I think a lot of kids who come from from impoverished situations or, you know, poor neighborhoods are taught to deal in that because you don't really have room for like the other shit. 
if you if you live in the other space, you you be held up in life. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you you kind of have to be like, what is in front of me, hmm. and what can I do with what's in front of me to get me somewhere else? And like that's that's all you have. So in a, in a lot of ways, that's just how my my brain works. Again, it's just like that's how I I truly see the shit. You know, as we talked about at the beginning, um, you quit after first trying stand up at 21 because it didn't feel right, and it was hard to put your finger on. But it was it was just sort of off. You know, now that you're experiencing it and you you film the special, can you now say like, oh, this is exactly what it should feel like? You know, what is is that feeling that you now are at? Yeah, hundred percent. I I didn't have anything to say. I didn't even know I was still sucking dicks, bro. I didn't even know who I was, man. You know what I'm saying? So it was like, how can you go up and present anything? You know, I had no idea who I was. So I think that was ninety percent of it not feeling right. It was just like, I didn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. So I couldn't translate anything. And so the connection I was looking for, that like tingly, like it can only come from God type thing. It just, it wasn't happening. And I was like, but I love this and I think I could be great at this. So like, why? It's not supposed to feel like this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know why my brain was doing that, but that's what my brain was doing. And and when I got back on stage at 28, about to be 29, it was like, yeah, it's time. It just mm-hmm. felt like it's time. <laughs> <laughs> so that sound means it's time for our final segment. It's the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Shorter questions, way chiller, I promise. And you can pass if you don't have an answer to any of these. Do you have a favorite joke joke, like a street joke? It's one my brother used to tell me as a kid, actually. And it's just a bad joke. Uh, how did the gum cross the road? How? It was stuck to the chicken's foot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the dumber these are, is my, it's always my favorite. <laughs> um, is there a joke of another comedian's that you wish you could steal but in a way where it's not like you'd get in trouble. It's like a, a different dimension where everything's exactly the same, but you have this joke. It's a joke you saw and you're like, oh, I wish I had that or I wish I thought of that. I can't think of it right now, but probably at least four jokes that Jack Knight has written mm. and done that I've been like, shit, I wish I would have thought of that. Um, here, uh, I have two SNL questions and here's the first. Um, you've talked about how the best of Eddie Murphy... I guess VHS was really seminal and it was a thing you watch a lot. Do you have any specific memory from his episode that you, you could talk about? The craziest part is just when he first like got there and like, you know, we're pitching and he was just being so cool. You know, he was just talking about how his office used to be set up and like just getting a sit in a, in a room with Eddie Murphy and just talk. And, and talk about a job that, you know, to some degree we've shared and an experience mm-hmm. that we both had and like hear his perspective and him asking like how it is now and finding similarities and differences in that was just so wild. It was just so crazy. Velvet Jones was in Black Jeopardy, right? And you, you helped write that. What was it like writing a character that you sort of, like, it's almost like these characters are their own famous people that you got right. to meet. It was really like, wow, because in Pitch, I, I did a Velvet Jones pitch. Hmm. And then the next day, they were like, hey, these people kind of like that. They were kind of into that. Maybe we could write something up, you know? 
and do it in this space. And I was like, oh, that's mad cool because like they originated this shit, you know? Like he brought his original writers and stuff. So I'm like, these are the people that came up with this shit. And I'm just a like a fan, honestly. And so to, to be able to even touch that character and then have Eddie do it and like have the, the people that he came up with this with be like, no, that was on target and funny. And it was just like, it was so, it was an honor, really. Yeah. The To talk about another sketch, I think one of my favorites, if not the, my favorite sketch that I believe you, you helped write was the Cha-Cha Slide sketch yes. with John Yes. I love when people do this, though, and they say a sketch I didn't. I've had that happen to me like three times. Oh, God. And I'm like, no, I didn't do that. <laughs> like, eh. what, are the, what are the sketches they think you did? Just anything black. That's what I assume. <laughs> I'm like, that help me. But I, so, Cha-Cha Slide, I, I just, I, tell me everything about that sketch, because I feel like it was a thing that existed. I thought it was really unique, and I thought it was a really interesting tone for a sketch. Can you talk about the the pitch of it the writing of it anything about that's that sketch you know tuck just kind of like tuck had the the thing where he was like he want to do something to the cha-cha slide that's usually how some shit start at snl you know it's just like someone will have an idea like yo i want to do something where john does this he like and you know we'll kind of like fish it around a different writer see who bites type of thing you know so he was just kind of like yo you think you could you know fuck with that i was like yeah let's you know jam on it and then, you know, later on that Tuesday, we just started like jamming on it. And, you know, it starts with just building the space. Like, where is this all going to take place? Oh, it could be like this. It's really that organic. I think people think like, that's no some crazy like space where like Lauren's whipping us and then like, and we like <laughs> running on a treadmill and writing at the same time or some shit. But really it's that organic. It's just like, oh, it could be a wedding. Oh yeah, angle would be perfect. Oh yeah, then we could do this. Oh yeah, then we could do that. And that's just how it gets built. You know what I mean? Is there a moment in that sketch that you particularly like? I love the Tom Joyner Cruz line. <laughs> it's my favorite because I got it up in there and it's the blackest shit. It's such an inside black thing. Yeah. That it makes everybody and I love the uh the alpha, the the alpha phi alpha shit. That's another mm-hmm. one where like homies hit me up like, that's so fucking fire. You know, it's like those just like super black moments that it's like. I'm sure white people will watch it like, what? <laughs> yeah, as a, as a white person who watched it, I was I was like, I know this. I You could tell when something's a specific, even if you don't get it. Like, you like, can tell when something rings as, like, a funny specific thing, even though if you don't have the, like, immediate touchstones. Yeah. So the next two guests on the podcast are Cecily Strong and John Mulaney. Hey! Uh, I want to know if you have any questions for either of them. Please ask Cecily for me, how's her summer? And how did she get her skin to be so glowing and luxurious? Mm-hmm. And you can ask John, when's the last time he wore my girlfriend's Martin hat that she gave him? Aw. Great. Uh, I love that. Maybe we'll end with this one, which is, um, do you have a joke that you really thought was funny that you kept on trying, but just kept on not working? And maybe you gave it up, maybe you still haven't, but you'll sort of like, never give up your personal belief that it's funny you just sort of like haven't figured out a way to get the audience on board yet yeah i got a joke about the AIDS quilt (laughs) (laughs) that i think is hilarious but it's also one of my like live i just be doing dark shit it's one of these dark little jokes that like every time i do it they like no it's basically just that like i was i was watching this (laughs) documentary on the AIDS quilt 
And it was showing like old footage because they were talking about like where it is now and like does it still matter to people like the people that were initially like there and you know sewed a name into the quote all that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. And they were showing the guy who had like curated the quilt, and they were showing like old footage of this dude, and he was just so excited about this, you know. And I was like, this is a very dark thing to be like ambitious about. And yeah. he was just like, he was like, one day this quilt will fill this whole field, and I was just like, that is sick. Like where people's ambitions lie is really wild. And then I was like, he's probably really sad that Magic Johnson didn't die from full blown AIDS because that probably was going to be the centerpiece. <laughs> Of the quilt, but people don't go for it. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> landmines of that one. Of yeah. things people are like I don't know. But I'm a, I'm a, I'm a get that motherfucker. It might end up in a, in like in a movie or something. You know, <laughs> it might have to live somewhere else for people to laugh at it. But yeah. shit's funny. It's like you need it to be a character says it, and then yeah. someone be like, "You're fucked up." Yeah, like it might need that space. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? <laughs> but it's funny to me. And that's been the dope thing about sketch is some of them type of ideas, I found a way to make them live in sketches. And that's so exciting. Because I'm like, oh, this works better here than me just like saying some nut shit. Uh, Thank you so much. No problem. That's it for another episode of Good One. You can find Three in the Morning on Netflix. Follow Sam on social media at Sam J Comic. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, Art Chung, and Camila Salazar. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Cecily freaking Strong. Have a good one. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.